Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. I am Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons, Casey. Hey, welcome back. It's good to see you guys. Welcome back. It's great to see you. And Mr. Peter Crable. To think this all started five years ago in a little Starbucks over a cup of coffees, man. Crazy. Season five, fellas. We are are back and better than ever. Um, You can hear it in my voice. I can't believe we're back and I can't believe we've been doing this for so long. I can't believe it took us so long to get this episode recorded. <laughs> it has taken a long time. Well, we're, uh, we're busy and we're going to have to catch our listeners up on what we're doing with our lives. Uh, as always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Educational, full-service educational media company specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform. Uh, some, somewhere, Crable, you took out the word curate out of that. that I, think, that, I think Casey took that out. Yeah. That plug. Yeah, that was a terrible <laughs> word. Uh, you can find us. Uh, at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter, and of course, visit the website edsnotdead.com. We are back. All right, boys, let's get caught up. Uh, we have not had a show since when? When did we, re- when did we June record? June 6th, 2021. And people, and people are still downloading our content. A lot. They are. A lot they are, people. right? Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you to we, our listeners. We just found... <laughs> I knew that our content went to YouTube automatically every time we posted. Uh, I did not was not aware that people were actually watching or listening, as the case may be, on YouTube. Uh, so check us out on YouTube, please. What are some What are some of the more popular segments? Smash that subscribe button. Smash it. Joe, Smash it. Joe Feldman grading for equity. Grading That's for a big equity. one. Big one. And uh, our interview, our first interview uh, with Zaretta Hammond as well. Which is now what three years ago, and people still listen. People are still listening to it. Oh yeah, and on the I mean on the website it gets a ton of play, and um, on uh, our Libsyn page it gets a ton of play too. Another one to plug while we're plugging ourselves here. At the plug beginning, it, plug it, plug very it. important. Plug uh, it. Equity sticks are not enough. What it's called, <laughs> Casey? That's right. Yeah, uh, an article written by Casey, edited very heavily by me. I contributed a lot to that article for sure. By taking by taking probably a lot of words out. <laughs> uh, but no, it, it it has thousands upon thousands of views. So that has been a big a big winner. It's awesome. I did not know that. That's exciting. And, that helps my ego a little bit. And CH Siddons, how about uh, Pandemic Pass? Are you are you still are you still pumping the spinoff pod? No, it was it was a it was a several episode spiel. Uh, but you know what, a lot of the stuff that we discussed on pandemic pass, if you go back and listen, uh, you know, the things that we were worried about and the things that we talked about that we're, we should be hopeful about a lot of them came to fruition and it's, it's actually, there's a lot of, I think a lot of things to be hopeful about in this coming year, uh, as we, as we move ahead in our public education journeys. All right. Well, there's so much to talk about because we haven't been, haven't done an episode in a while. We're incredibly excited. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in for the fifth season of Ed's Not Dead. Spread the word. We have a great show for you. We are honored and excited to once again welcome back Johan Neem, our Ed's Not Dead resident historian. Last time we had Johan on was the summer of 2020. We were in the depths of the pandemic and all wondering whether public ed would survive. And so we're going to have Johan on tonight and, and get his current take on where things stand with public education. And we're going to talk a little bit about a piece in the New York Times about the, I don't know, purported death of <laughs> gifted education at the elementary level in the New York City public schools. All right. 
The word is, I've heard on the street that both of you have gone over to the dark side in education. <laughs> what's that? What's that about? Tell our listeners. Well, I think both Casey and I uh, switched schools this summer. I wouldn't call it the dark side of education. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a little perilous. Uh, but no, we did switch schools. I'm now in a position called principal intern. Oh, oh. a position of power. Yeah. Great power. Intern. <laughs> yes. Which is very confusing to kids when you tell them that. And they're like, uh-huh. Uh, so yeah. what are you exactly? <laughs> do, when do I tell them... Me? I kind of feel like I've been demoted when they give me a puzzled look. Uh, and I'm like, no, it's a good thing. No, no, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, It's yeah. really good. It's really good. Yeah, trust it's really me. really good. Uh, how does it, do you, how, how does it, go ahead, go ahead, George Bush. Do, do, hey, yeah, it's going to be pretty. Do you, do you make Lost them call you, can I finish? Um, do you, do you make them call you principal intern Crable? Crable? Oh yeah, for sure. All the time. Or is it like a Montessori school where you call they call you by your first name, Principal Intern Peter, P-I-P. Uh, a little bit of both, you know, yeah. depending on, on the kid, the mood. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, what, so what had more cred when, you, when you'd say, I, I'm your assistant principal, or I'm the assistant principal, versus now you in the hall, you say, I'm the principal intern. <laughs> uh, 100% assistant principal had more, more credit in the, the halls. <laughs> yeah, is, that like, said, is that like a fake, uh, a fake thing? Yeah, like, so are you, do you have a job here? Or <laughs> are you paid to do this? Like, what, what, is, what is this exactly? So how's it going? It's going really well. No, it's yeah. been, and, it and, been and, a good learning experience and, and fun too. So Cool. Very yeah. good. And... Well, actually, I had forgotten that you were you were already on the dark side, Mr. Craves. You had already come over to management. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Mr. Siddons is a new arrival to management. That's right. That's right. I am now an assistant principal. <laughs> oh, no. Look at, look at you. Oh, no, there's so many people that don't talk to me anymore. It's so sad. And, and how's that going? Are you, are you enjoying it's, it? I, I'm, uh, it's so busy and so active and i'm learning so much it's like it's like drinking from a fire hose but also in a very good it's like a very good um it's stretching me and growing in me in ways i didn't i never expected so in that way it's great uh there's a part of me that misses the the i think there's a a piece of like teacher camaraderie that you kind of miss out on a little bit you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you're when you're with your teacher colleagues, that's different. I mean, as a as an AP, as an administrator, there's only one, two, three, four of you. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're in that teacher culture, there's a there's a lot. You can have a, a big circle. Yeah, yeah, and and like there's some there are a lot of great people at my new school. So it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing place, and uh, the the teachers are amazing. Uh, has anybody guys, re- has anybody referred to you yet as admin? It doesn't uh, always it doesn't always have the most positive connotation. Admin yes. says go yes. talk to admin. Go, go talk to admin. admin. Yeah. Go talk to admin. I don't know. It was uh, an admin decision. But <laughs> but I'm still in a good spot as an assistant principal to say, uh, that's a little above my pay grade. So I'm gonna defer, you know. How are you liking how are you liking that student discipline? You've been doing some of that? Yeah, you know, uh, the first couple of weeks were a lot because the I feel like the sixth graders um, they came back and there was just like a lot of interpersonal issues like right away. Dude, that's your specialty. You are the sixth grade man. I know. And I, I really enjoy it, but it was like every day and I'm like, Whoa, is this like, 
I was telling my principal, I said, is this, is this going to be like every day for the whole year? Because <laughs> if so, I don't know if I want to be a part of this. Uh, like we do get to go into classrooms, right? Like that's a part of Yeah. So I was going to ask. Um, it has calmed down significantly. All right. All yeah. right so easy percentage. Um, management versus instructional leadership out of 100%. 60-40, 50-50, 70-30. It, it's it's like a it 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 goes back and forth. Early on, it was like seventy five twenty five. All right, and seventy five twenty five management. No, seventy five management of issues going on. And right, right, yeah. And yeah. now it's it's kind of down to like sixty forty. I'd say we're we're moving towards equilibrium here. All right, as a principal intern, Crable, you're supposed to be beyond that all that lower level. I'm above uh, the fray. Yeah. So what are you what are you doing? Are you are you are you Mr. Instructional Leader? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, <laughs> on Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, on no, Wednesday, actually, yeah, no, um, no, I, I've been very fortunate in that um, I've been given uh, given the reins or long leash or whatever other crappy analogy you want to use um, to really work with uh, the leadership team um, to really kind of help craft the instructional vision and implementation this year so it's been quite quite a bit of that and conversations around that planning agendas around that feedback gathering data um stuff like that so I've, you know one thing that i'm i'm happy about is it's been much more on that end as opposed to what like casey was saying so rd wow. as, a, as an experienced admin at all admin. levels really at all levels in central office um what is the equilibrium for you of management versus instructional leadership in an ideal state. What's your ideal state percentage? of that, of that, of that percentage that I made you right. guys state. Mm-hmm. Um, at best. And this is, this is pie in the sky. Um, 80, 20. Um, you can certainly live and, and do a lot of great work. I think with 70, 30, Mm-hmm. Um, as you start to get down to half and half, then I think you're, you have to ask yourself, why am I spending so much time on urgent, but unimportant stuff? Yeah. Um, and, and not getting into classrooms or not meeting with teachers or, you know, not joining PLCs, all that really important stuff. So, um, but, but like you said, Casey, you nailed it. I mean, it's not, there's no there's no straight, um, the curve here, it's just some weeks are better than others. Um, right. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and it, and it is tough because you try to keep your schedule sacred, you know, your calendar and you, you have ideas about what's important and what you want to do. I, I, I know you both agree though, that, um, now I'm starting to sound like an infomercial. You, you know, when you get do spend those times out in the halls, walking into classrooms, asking kids what they're working on, seeing lessons, it feels completely different than when you're in the office managing problems. Oh, yeah. a different job. Yeah, it's a totally different job. A more and, enjoyable and, job. And yeah. we need to do it. We need to do a segment on that. How the how how charters have management folks, and some folks are freed up to be instructional leaders. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, interesting. All right. <laughs> gifted and talented programs at the elementary level. Um, so uh, let's jump right in, guys, to this piece. 
that I think Mr. Krabs found the Blasio to phase out NYC gifted and talented programs. This was in the New York Times uh, just last week, October 8th, by Eliza Shapiro. So uh, I guess I guess the mayor uh, back in the early days of his administration had made some promises about doing away with or largely modifying um, gifted tracks and um, exclusive test-in gifted programs at the elementary level in the New York City public schools. Um, and now, just weeks before the end of his administration, he is he is addressing it. Um, they are talking about creating ways to create much more equity and access um, that will benefit more kids. They'll have, I guess, opportunities to engage in more challenging curriculum or gifted classes as opposed to being in a discrete gifted program um, with exclusive program with uh, like identified gifted children. Um, what am I missing, Mr. Krabs? What do you, what do you, what do you think of this? I, you, you obviously thought this would be a really great piece for a hot take. Um, I, I'm curious on whether you're going to say blow it all up and, and get rid of them. Yeah, no, it's, it was, um, it, I know I found it, but it was, it was like, man, Shows a very divisive issue right off the right off the bat for this uh, this season, <laughs> because I, I don't know. You know, at the end of the day, if you force me to like make a decision one way or the other, I I, I think I would still hedge, and I might lean towards like doing away towards GT programs and like elementary and middle, and then reinstituting them in high school you know, some, some hybrid model or something. But I think at the end of the day, it's like the, the fact of the matter is indisputably magnet or I'm sorry, GT programs in New York city, according to the article have increased segregation and are segregated themselves. So I think that is an issue that needs to be addressed. Now the, the recipe, the prescription for that, geez, I I don't know because I also know, and I've, I've talked to several people about this, and um, you know, I think the fact of the matter is that their kids are different, and kids need different things. And some kids need this, and some kids need that, and some kids genuinely and do benefit from probably what a GT program has to offer. The issue has been the incredible lack of access, again, from the article, um, for all students that look all different types. So some of the things that um, one of the leading candidates, I think Eric Adams was in here, was talking about not doing away with the programs, but um, setting up more sort of GT centers in schools in in more, sorry, in less segregated neighborhoods. So that's an idea um, that is like, okay, but ultimately, I don't know, maybe I'm just, I'm just too chicken to take, take a stand and be like, do away with them all or like keep the status quo and like, you have GT kids and keep them in there. I do think something needs to be done. I'm just not sure that I have the answer right now. I, I, I think, uh, I don't, I don't know that we're going to be talking about this again because I think Eric Adams is going to reverse the decision. It'll be a politically totally reverse it. He'll totally reverse it. Um, his spokesperson was hedging. So I don't know. I I wouldn't be surprised. I, I think as you're saying, Pete, like the, 
the, the data is clear. There's, there's a million kids in New York City public schools and 70% of them are, are students who are black and Latino. And then if you look at the data in the gifted elementary classes of the 16,000 students, 75% of them are white or Asian. You can't have more stark disparities. There, there is not another uh, a starker disparity in, in racial enrollment that I can think of in that sense. And we have to, we have to rethink what is, why are we using G, GT programs? What's the purpose of them? Um, I know that New York City tried to diversify their programs a few years ago. I don't remember the process by which they were looking at it, but they were trying to, you know, the test scores and if they're, you know, uh, reaching students of color. But at the end of the day, the data is so skewed to not uh, to white and Asian students, like something had to change. And it is my, my last point on it is, it's it's a the GT programs are a way for for white and Asian parents, in, at least in this community, in my opinion, to to have a, a a private education with public funds, in a way that's segregating our schools in ways that aren't healthy for kids. A private education. Why 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 is it private? Because be, well, I mean, I shouldn't say it's private, but it's it's essentially an trying to get education, maybe? an exclusive education in a way that you would get in a private way through using lots of money. So you can say that, well, I'm going to my my child is in public schools. It's like the 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 way that some liberal elites, uh, you know, are kind of above the fray and 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 can say they're still going to public schools. They say they're talking the talk, but really. They're they're using their their power and their access and the the support and the tutors that they have access to and the money they have to get their kids into better public education settings than students of color. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty obvious. I mean I don't know this for a fact, but I would guess, you know who who has who has largely pushed for gifted education over its history. White parents. Not, yeah. I mean, I, that, that's, that's what I would, that's what I would say. I, and I, I mean, and I'm Robbie, I don't, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I also, okay. I don't want to, I, I don't want to impugn motives of parents at large as a generalization, even though I like to make generalizations because everybody wants the best education for their kids. hundred percent. Right. We want the best for our kids. Uh, but I think system wise, like it's bigger than just what one or, you know, a handful of parents or thousands of parents are asking for. It's a system issue. Um, and it has to be solved by the system. I, I mean, I think the data, one, one, one area in the literature on education that is pretty convincing is that, uh, and there's probably been more research done on it than any other area is tracking. Yeah. Um, and, you know, tracking is generally found to be um, deleterious for kids that are in lower tracks. Um, if you if you skim off, and I'm not even going to call them highly able. Let's call them more. Let's call them more ready kids because it's all about readiness, right? It's readiness to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the idea of ability because I always think it's, it's kind of a, a fixed idea that some kids are superior to others intellectually and always will be. Yep. Um, 
I know you don't like that because you you've said that you could learn um, you could learn multivariable calculus next yeah, week if you had to. <laughs> I thought you'd get a laugh out of that. <laughs> That's a good one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Anyway, um, the point that your point is solid, though. I you know my uh, no, but my point is is that um, I don't. I actually. Crable, I just had a moment like you had <laughs> earlier. I have no idea just what my blank. point was. It's, it's completely, it's the pandemic. It's the fog. Fog, man. The brain I, just I, says I'm good. No, you're, you were talking about tracking and, and yeah, I mean, you're tracking your kids. And, and, and I was going to defer to you, Casey, because you piloted a program at the sixth grade level, which is also a, a, a time as the first or second year of middle school where kids are heavily tracked by ability. Right. right. Um, the, program that, the program that you piloted, the, the beauty and the strength of it was heterogeneity. And the heterogeneity in the population of students that you had. Racial uh, heterogeneity, intellectual heterogeneity, right? I mean, you yep. had a very, it was, it was the epitome of diversity. Right. And and I would be curious about what you saw that made that so special. Ultimately, it, it came down to a few things. One is operating in an, an environment, in a school environment that allowed for experimentation and innovation. That's number one. Number two is, is having the lateral to plan with other teachers who you know are trying to do the best for kids and but what about for kids put yourself in the in the shoes of a kid why was it beneficial for a kid in that program but i i, I you want to we've talked about what it did for you all as teachers but right. what did it what did it do for kids well i i think you have exposure to different students and students who may not look like them or students who might not be in their their particular friend group so you're you're building connections with kids who are not only different in terms of race, ethnicity, and, and religion, but you're also experiencing students of different um, reading levels and, and trying to um, navigate through that. And, and I think the, the effects on both students who are, let's say, for example, higher, have higher reading levels at that, at that moment and those who had lower reading levels, I think you have uh, a, a mutually beneficial, I don't know, cause and so, effect for the kids that are surrounding each other. So just so to that point, and Crable, I'm curious about what you think of this. Just the idea that it's somehow bad for a kid who, like, let's say he's in fifth grade, who's maybe at a ninth or tenth grade reading level, that it's somehow not good for them to be in the same learning space as a kid who's reading at a second grade level. Because there's, there's something to that with parents. They don't want their kids with the kid that's reading at a second grade level. They want their kids with kids who have commensurate skills. And I think, I think this is twofold. So one to directly answer that question, I think there's some legitimacy to that because as a teacher, it's very hard to meet such wide and varied um, kind of current aptitude or however you want to say it. It's challenging. Not that it can't be done, but it is challenging. And one of the points that's made in the article is that like Casey did it. I agree. I didn't say, as I said, it's challenging, but the article, it is challenging. Yeah. the article talks about differentiation as something that everybody talks about, but how many teachers actually do it and how many actually do it well. 
I don't know, but it's very hard to do. And it's a very advanced skill that requires management, that requires content knowledge, that requires communication, that requires community, that requires, you know, all these things that so more skill, it would require more skilled teacher, I'm saying. And then I think to go back to your kind of previous point is my issue with tracking and taking kids out like in kindergarten is part of the point of kindergarten and early elementary is socialization. Right. It's it's learning how to exist in a space with other people. It's learning how to work through conflict. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's academic. It's having the foundations of learning how to read for sure, but it's more than that. And, I, you know, when we talk to Johan Neem later, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to talk about the individualist fallacy, but he wrote an article that references the individualist fallacies relates to online learning. And so where you just say everything else about education is unimportant. The only thing that matters is what I learn and what I know. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the real danger of, I think in elementary school in particular with taking GT kids out is they're like, well, how, what does that even mean? And how are these kids even being selected? You know, is it a valid criteria? And then who does it really benefit them or does it just take them out and like, sort of uh, narrow their experience um, while also impacting the experience of others. So I think that's where I come down on the like anti GT elementary. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I would argue John Meyer would argue that institutionally the purpose of schools, the, the secret that nobody really wants to talk about is, is that schools, their primary purpose is to socialize. Yeah. Um, that's, and, uh, that's so funny. I was I was going to talk about that. That's, keep going. And, Sorry. And but maybe we maybe we don't do a good enough job in public schools socializing kids because of the way we approach these kinds of things, um, which is to you know create more inequality. I'm sorry. I mean, school when you track and you create exclusivity. You're 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 contributing to social inequality yep. in some way. You can't tell me that you're not. Yep. Um, and and I think you know I think that's a problem with socialization. I mean that's that's a that's we're not serving creating a stronger social fabric that way. Anyway, go uh, ahead, Casey. Well, I, th- I I just want to echo what you're saying. Is like that I've had s- several conversations with folks this year. We have an advisory class which you know has people that love it and people that don't like it. And I think it merits a discussion about like, what is the purpose of school? Like it, we, if, if, if our only purpose was to teach novels or to teach medieval history, okay, well that's an opinion to have, but I think societally, like we have an obligation to teach the whole child. Like how do we operate with other kids? How do we, absolutely? how do we bridge divides between racial groups, genders, you know, socioeconomic status? How do we help kids navigate the world in which they're, we're going to throw them into after, you know, high school or, or and beyond? So it, we have to be more cognizant and just more accepting of the broader purposes of why we're bringing kids into the same building every day. And, and one of the amazing things that to, to plug public ed is that you know our schools are not nearly as socially stratified as as most schools in Europe, 
And John, Hanu- John Hanushak from Stanford has shown pretty unequivocally that countries with national school systems with high levels of tracking have greater in- economic and social inequality uh, because of tracking. And, and you know, and, I, and, I, and schools in Europe are, if they're, if our segregation in our current schools is, is bad, which is, it is in many areas, it's, it's possibly even worse in Europe. From, I mean, in, it, in, in Northern Ireland, they, they have a test called, and, and well, in the UK, they have a test called the 11s, right? You take, an, a, you take a test when you're 11 that basically determines the rest your, your of your academic future. Oh. Yeah. I mean, at least oh. we don't do, if we don't do that, for God's sake. That would have been bad for me. So let me, so I've inferred a stance from both of you, but. In relation to the article, no, don't do that. Don't do the Sean Hannity. I do. I do. No. I do. It was one of them. It was we got to go to break. We got to important commercial break. Two, two things. Sponsors. Sponsors. One, one last thing I do want to say because you you share this with Casey and I, Robbie. For anyone that's interested in what the what the GT marker test is for kindergartners, it's called the wait, is it the Raven or just Raven? <laughs> the Raven. That's one of the things. <laughs> so so. I, I, so can I, think, I, can I I've always heard it called the Raven. It is. I, I actually just did it. It's the progressive matrices test. That one. Correct. Correct. Yes. It, can I share it's, with it's, you all? And, and it and it's it's nonverbal intelligence. I mean, yeah, that's it's, essentially it's spatial what it's intelligence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's looking at patterns and then finding correct. the missing piece of the puzzle. So, so gentlemen, I I, I have a peek, sneak peek for you into these okay. GT tests. I'm going to share right. a couple questions with you that I want. I want to get your take on it, and you'll have but to describe it for do the like, do like two. Can, can't you can't you save back. those for the quiz so we can go to, to no, Johan? Yeah, the quiz is going to be real quick, but this is just I'll do two. How's that? Okay, two. Go ahead. All right, first one. Go to show feedback. The show feedback. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you one of the questions because it it can't be read. Okay. There's one. What does it say, Robbie? Describe it for our listeners. What goes? Oh, I'm not supposed to read it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> What goes in the question mark box? It says. What goes in the, the question? Choose an image below. What, what? Describe it for our audience. It would be uh, in the. There's a four. There's a. There's a box divided into four quadrants. In the top two quadrants are two large purple stars. In the bottom left quadrant is a small light blue star, and Mr. Crable has to put the corresponding shape into the right the missing lower, lower quadrant right, yeah this is yeah this was the raven which i just aced yep. by the way and I then here's make it into a kid I, mean, I can totally see i i and i would fumble around on the raven. and and, and here's right. here's the other one there's a couple questions for kindergartners or young children uh question what does teach mean on which continent is france and then the last one they gave it as an example. Why is candy not sold in some schools? By the way, I aced this quiz. <laughs> Just saying. Um, but it explains why they use it. And it shows both sides of, of the positives and negatives of it. But I, I don't know. It just... I, I just seems silly to me to be doing All right. That. Who's who's this Who's this guy that's... Who's this guy that's going to win the... the going to be mayor? The next mayor? Eric Adams. Eric so... Adams. So are we gonna we're gonna come back to the the death of gifted programs in New York City once he gets elected? No, I think this was a De Blasio marker for his next political move, which was I think going to be for governor. Yeah, definitely. It's his. It's it's throwing down the liberal street cred without having to actually like live with the 
all the, the consequences. Senator. Senator. Oh, senator. The political fallout that, that comes from it. <laughs> Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, that's a great segue, Mr. Grace, because we are going to talk to our next guest, friend of the pod, uh, friend of Ed's Not Dead, Johan Neem, our resident historian. And we are going to get his take on the current state of uh, public education and probably the the, politi- the 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 partisanship that exists around schools right now. Um, put your mask on, Mr. Crable. Uh, all right. Don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, fellas, we are incredibly excited to welcome back our resident historian of Ed's Not Dead, Johan Neem, to the show. Thanks we for wanted, having me back. We're, we're excited to have you. I think uh, the last time you were with us, Johan, it was August of 2020, and we were in the depths of the pandemic, and it was red alert on public education. So um, this is our first show of our fifth season, and who better to have on to talk about how public ed is currently performing or surviving than you. (laughs) So be it it online learning, COVID recovery, the movement toward more equitable outcomes for kids. Lots of these are still relevant. Um, And the future of post-secondary ed, I'm giving you kind of a potpourri of things to choose from. Where are we right now with education in the country? Wow. Well, that's a big, that's a big sort of space to start. Just give us the overview. Yeah. Yeah, So the the overview. um, There's a lot happening. Uh, I think, you know, when we talked last, it was probably around the time I'd just written this piece for USA Today about pandemic pods and parents dropping out and whether this was the beginning of the end. Um, and, And my fear came out of the fact that public education, we take for granted, but it actually requires a lot of buy-in from parents and citizens, right? And that buy-in came by mass participation. Like if your child's invested in it, if your child's in, then you have investment in other people's children because that same institution is effectively something you have a stake in. You're a stakeholder. And so my fear is if parents were pulling their kids out was that, you know, particularly middle class or, or above parents would sort of lose their commitment to public schools and we'd start to move back to a charity school model like we had in the 1700s, early 1800s. I'm less worried about that now. Um, I think what Woo-hoo. happened was, what's that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're excited. Yeah, Ed's, I mean, not de- Ed's, Ed's not like dead. Ed's not dead. Yeah, Ed's not dead. That's right. Not quite dead yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the reasons is I think the experience of the pandemic taught people how much the collective experience of schooling really matters. How much the how much kids need mentors, how much kids need each other, how much kids need spaces where they're nurtured, how much, you know, how much of the sort of socialization, both academic and and social development takes place through interaction. And, And in some ways, that was the water we were swimming in. And yes, there are still people talking about opting out and things like that. And, but I think for a lot of parents, there was an awareness of how much these institutions we took for granted are fragile and matter and how hard teachers work and how much even this flawed thing called the public school with all its warts 
really, really makes a difference in our lives. So that's, that's sort of my hopeful vision. The part, don't let me leave you with too much hope because that would be, <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the times we live in. The part I guess I still worry about is the way in which the pandemic is now being embroiled in the culture wars, right? The mask, the debates over masking um, combined with the sort of um, intense debate over critical race theory and are being used as wedges to, to keep us divided over public schools, right? The schools are supposed to be the common schools. And, and yet we see like in Arizona, people are being offered vouchers if their schools require them to be masked. We see the kind of war in Florida between local school districts who are siding with Biden and, and the Republican governor who is, you know, threatening um, school, school leaders with lots of, lots of support, right, financial support. So we've sort of found, like, we've gone from one fear to another fear, which is, is the pandemic going to be used to, to sort of make the public schools seem to many people to be partisan organizations rather than common schools? And will that, will that be an opportunity for a longstanding agenda to move towards vouchers and school, different kinds of school choice? I think you mentioned it last time, too, about um, our beliefs in institutions and the, the crumbling belief in public education as an institution, because that is certainly seeing that as well. There was a political article about a, uh, the memo that they put out about uh, a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against educators and school board members. Uh, d- right. I mean, what what is your take on that? I mean, did you see that article? That, I think it was the from the FBI. They put out a memo saying that they're going to up the investigations on on folks who are threatening school boards. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we have to be careful, right? We have to draw a line, obviously, between deeply contested school board meetings, which are in a sense about the vibrancy of democratic schooling yep. and threats of violence and also public health threats. When people don't wear a mask, they're actually posing a threat by their presence in, in large gatherings, right? And so we have different questions that are at play here. Um, I don't know the data. I mean, I saw the article. I saw, I saw that, you know, the FBI was going to look into this. Um, and I think it's, it's troubling because it reflects, going back to this question of institutions, to me, this sense that the legitimacy of our institutions are not shared, right? We don't agree. I mean, this is partly what happened on January 6th. We don't agree with the basic legitimacy of the institutions. And that's partly what's happening with public schools, right? And how big that group who sees, you know, who are willing to use threats and violence. They're willing to use threats and violence because they don't actually have the kind of respect for the institution, the school board right. that they might have, even if they disagree with those people, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's a kind of alienation that is, I don't give this entity any respect or care. And so right. that's where violence starts to break out. And so from that perspective, these isolated moments are scary because they reflect yeah. the fragility of our social order itself. Right. And I, I guess going back, um, you know, you talked about how nowadays schools are being used as um, like a wedge and not a unifying force. So I guess my question is, is if that's a new thing, because I was trying to think back, because my impression is, no, that's not a new thing. But then I was like, well, what good examples do I have? And I guess 
going back to Brown versus board would be a really poignant example, but has it even prior to that, has it kind of always been this way where societal and cultural issues have come out in schools and people have schools have kind of been a proxy for those disagreements? I think, I think those are two separate things. Yeah. I mean, I think because, you know, our public schools really matter or all our schools really matter and they matter to us because that's where our next generation socialized. Right. So in that sense, we're always, we care so deeply about our schools and what happens in them because they affect the moral development, the intellectual development. They reflect questions about our culture. Everything is sort of embedded and they're about children, right? What, what kinds of children do we want um, to raise? So that's not new, right? Debates over Protestantism and Catholicism and secularism, debates over evolution, what our sex ed have been intense. I think what we're seeing here that is scary, and it is maybe like Brown versus Board, I think there's something different. I mean, the Brown versus Board was about a fundamental difference, right, over um, desegregation. Um, what we're seeing here is a real kind of way in which the schools have become themselves portrayed as wings of a particular ideology and party. Right. And I say portrayed as because I'm not necessarily claiming that's, that's the fact. Um, there's some reasons why conservatives are legitimately worried, right? This, this um, I think you, you, had a, you had a recently said, talked about is social justice a purpose of public schooling. Right. But that very language speaks to many on the conservatives as itself left-wing, right? So even to use that framing um, appears to many as to be a left-wing project. So what you're starting to see is the question of whether the public schools really belong to the people at large. And I think, I think that's, that's a question that people are asking themselves um, or are being told to ask themselves. You know, and, and, and I also think sometimes, sometimes we forget, Johan, I'd be curious about your thoughts. Yes, the, 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 the public schools belong to the public. Um, but in some of these issues, the, the folks that are in question are the professionals that have been trained to make decisions um, uh, about the directions of schools. Um, so, for example, to get to Peter's point, I, I always tell them I remember the, the reading wars, phonics versus whole language. Those were politicized to the nth degree. Um, and... There were there were professionals in the field that thought that you know one way or the other was 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 the right way to teach kids, um, and so I, I see the folks that that run schools, the central office folks, principals, teachers, th- th- their their opinion seems to to count less and less in some ways. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 the it's the noise out there that that you hear about. So then, yeah, I'm with you. And, and the same thing's happening in higher education, right, with, with faculty. And, and do you respect the disciplinary expertise of scientists or social scientists or humanists, you know, historians? Do their, do their expert knowledge count? Right. And, and I think the way to frame it is, why is their expert knowledge not trusted by so many Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Not all Americans. But why is expertise itself seems to have become a partisan it's the Fauci effect. That's what we're going to call it. Yeah, the Fauci effect. Well, you know, and like, why does, I mean, we live in a crazy world, but 
something produced this distrust, right? And I think, I think it is a two-way street. Like social, I think social media. We have a long history in America of Facebook, of <laughs> democracy, um, Twitter. <laughs> well, Twitter, Twitter did it. Um, <laughs> Twitter didn't hurt. You know, it helped a lot um, because it amplified marginal voices. But we've had we've had other moments where expertise has been called into question, right? And that's when there seems to be a gap um, between the experts and everyone, and not everyone else, because it's not everyone else, but and large segments of the population. And again, we come back to legitimacy for experts to be trusted. They, we have to be seen as legitimate by our fellow citizens. If we look down upon them, if we use language that, that, that is disdainful, if we come across as disrespectful, if we, then we are at risk of undermining our authority because we actually don't live in a, we live in a democracy and that makes it very hard for a technocracy, right? Because right. I'm with you. Like we should defer, we should defer to experts who know things. Like I, I defer to doctors, medical doctors on medical issues because mm -hmm. I am not the expert on that. But in turn, those people have to maintain their trust, right? If hospitals put profit above healthcare, right, we would lose trust in those experts. And I think so. We also have to ask why are people losing trust? And part of it is yes, the the Twitter effect, the um, the faux populism of the Trump administration. You know, there's there's things that are ginning it up. But underlying that, I think there are deeper causes that let, let people to lose trust. And so we, that trust has to be rebuilt somehow. And I, and I don't think it's, it's not that it's new. It's always been there, but, but the, you know, an example would be the Trumpism being a, like the kerosene or the match that was lighting it on fire. And now we have to figure out how to put the fire out. Yeah. And, and we don't know where it started. So like, we, we, we don't know how to even find the, the beginnings of it. So uh, and it's and it's leaked into institutions that have have been so stable for so long, like public education. Can you, knowing your history of public schooling, can you think of another time in our history where distrust in public education was so fraught, or at least so deep? Well, I mean. If you think about moments like Reconstruction, right, right, where you had white terrorist groups actually burning schoolhouses, right, um, to avoid, you know, and and targeting black and white teachers of black children, um, you had moments where, like that, certainly where the legitimacy of the schools for racial reasons. And again, Brown versus Board came up earlier, where for racial reasons, people started to say, I'm not trusting these schools. I don't want to send my kids to these schools, right? And it actually took a lot of state power, including, you know, if you think about Little Rock, yeah. um, the National Guard, you know, it took, it took a lot of state power to move towards integration, and we still haven't achieved it. I mean, we and, started and, moving backwards. And you mentioned it in, your, in our last interview, but I thought it was, it came up again on my Twitter feed, actually, about when uh you know the whole state of virginia shut down their public schools right as a as a way to to combat desegregation of schools which um 
I, I guess that that would be maybe the most clearly connected episode of distrust, perhaps. But it was, but it was that you also mentioned it was the parents and the families of the, you know, the, I think you call it the moderates or so, who maybe weren't driven by racial equity, but they saw this happening and, and it spurred them to do, um, uh, to do better, perhaps. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. There was the moderates who realized they wanted the schools open and right. they wanted their kids back in school and they were going to have to make some adjustments to enable that to happen given what the new legal order was, right? That, that, that put a lot of pressure for the schools to reopen. I don't... So, so racism and racial conflict has produced, I don't know, so much distrust. That was, you know, but, but this kind of animosity towards public schools... Right. I think the distrust has been slow and growing, you know, with there were there were debates over should God be in school when the Supreme Court took out school prayer, right? There were debates over I mean it's slow and growing over the last few decades. There've been debates over um what kind of values our schools are allowed to teach or not teach, right? There've been um and the debate over critical race theory is just the most recent rendition of some of these debates. You know, right. what, are the, what are the fundamental values? Um, but for, 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 for a few decades, Republicans have been saying that the public schools are not ideologically sound places for conservatives, particularly people of faith. And that's not necessarily the case, but that is what that has been an argument out there. That's the drumbeat. And it's slowly undermined yeah. confidence in, this, in these institutions, right? Yeah. And so I want to tie um, that in because it actually leads nicely into the next question and kind of switch gears here and start to think about higher education. Um, so Casey sent us an article uh, talking about how in Florida, Ron DeSantis, the governor, is um, wants to do a statewide survey because he's concerned or concerned, you know, however you want to say it. I just did quotes because nobody can see me. <laughs> about the free flow of ideas on campus um, and essentially, you know, kids being indoctrinated to liberal ideas or ideology and then, you know, simultaneously um, conservative ideas in speech being stifled. So um, a couple of years ago, you wrote a book, What's the Point of College? And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think about is the, the, um, the diversity of viewpoints that can happen on a college campus. And in some ways, I think that like diversity of viewpoints has come to mean liberal, uh, you know, just anybody aside from this small, narrow set of thinking. But I guess talk a little bit about that and um, in, in, you know, what your argument was in the book about the point of college as well, because I know there was an economic aspect in there, too. Yeah, no, thank you. No, one of the things... I mean, it's a very similar phenomenon that's going on between colleges and the Republican Party, which is that the colleges are being portrayed as part of a partisan organization. What we've got is a sense of this of the state and the establishment being painted as hostile to, you know, so-called ordinary white Americans, right? And that, um, and and again, it's a two-way street, you know. And so I think. I might have misunderstood you, but I think part of what you were saying is that diversity, when we speak about that on a college education, on a college campus, we actually kind of mean diversity within the paradigm that we've defined diversity. And 
Um, and I think there's a lot, there's a lot of truth to that. Does that lead to conservatives getting targeted? Does that lead to, um, you know, students feeling marginalized because of their political beliefs in classrooms? I'm not sure that's the case. I think there is a, there is a jump there, you know, but, but our, but have professors, particularly in fields like mine, um, tended to move left? Yes. And has there been a way in which that, particularly in the context we're living in, where there seems to be a sort of move towards the extremes, had an impact in the capacity of, of the professoriate to be trusted by conservatives? Yes. You know, and so you have conservatives literally making war on professors. I mean, not literally, I guess, because that would require things. But in a sense, making, you know, making culture war on professors and professors have, in a sense, put them in positions where they're, where they're vulnerable to some of these claims, right? And so it's a, it's a challenging moment. Um, what, what would you attribute the movement left to, to some professors? What would you attribute that to? I think, I mean, I think part of it is the nature of the intellectual task, which is to ask questions all the time. I think part of it is socialization, that we're a group of people who, like any group of people, I mean, this is true of the military, it's true of a police force, it's true of a nursery school, it's true of a university, that, that people who are in a community of fellow people tend to follow those beliefs, right? Um, and I think it's because of ways in which certain kinds of questions about race, for example, have started to predominate. Um, the conversation on campus in ways that push other kinds of questions and conversations to the side a bit, right? Um, And so I think there's, and then I think during the Trump years, there was a lot of, you know, it was very hard to find middle ground when you were dealing with the kind of political cultural environment that we were dealing with over the past few years. And, you know, professors are human too. And so we, you know, we moved too, right? Yeah. So I, I was going to, don't you think though, some of that fishbowl effect in colleges um, is structural in nature in that just in my lifetime, in my 53 years, um, college has become less attainable for a larger portion of the population. So it's serving a certain population that's kind of recycling itself, which, which conservatives would refer to us as the elites. Um, I mean, I can remember a day when you could get into a large public institution like the university of Maryland with an average SAT score and a, and a, and a, 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 a low B average, but you could get a four year degree and have a good life. And, and I feel like college has become, tougher and so you're serving kind of more of the same kinds of kids or young people um, who think the same way uh, th- and, and I, I have concerns about that it seems less accessible for a larger segment of the population and then is demonized by that segment of the population yeah I'm not I'm not convinced that's the case in terms of like has college become less accessible well more people are going to college than ever before um, the payoff economically of a college degree is greater than ever. Um, we have to think about who and who has access problems. 
I don't think it's based on people's political or religious background. It's based on their economic background, you know, and often those economic background, people who struggle are first generation, they're non-white. And so if there is an access problem or a college debt problem, it's people in community colleges or who go to for-profits and then drop out, right? The other piece is who's made it less accessible? You know, people who don't want to pay public taxes to fund public institutions, right? Um, And so I don't, you know, but I think the fishbowl effect, I mean, we don't know fully the impact. You know, we know that college degree, people with college degrees tend to be more liberal, but we don't know fully the impact that a college education actually has on changing people's political beliefs. We know... um, so there's a lot of evidence that someone who comes to college conservative will end up coming out of college conservative, right? Yeah. Um, and so no, I, I thought you were going to say liberal. Sorry, <laughs> no I jumped the gun. You know, like <laughs> um, I mean, part of it is like you know, I mean, I just want them to know that we fought the British in the American Revolution. Like I'm right. not, you know, you know, that's not like if you got that, you know, um, and. So, I, I mean, I don't know if that, it's, that is a problem, college access. But I think, I think that is not what's fueling this distrust. I mean, if anything, I think conservatives have been wanting to defund or move to alternative kinds of college because they don't trust faculty in fields like mine. Yeah. Right. Or they, 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 I mean, they go as far as encouraging people not to go to college. I mean, yeah. that it's, that it's going to somehow ruin you if you do. Um, or make college, I mean, this is part of what spurred the book, right? The book is or make college more vocational, right? Or make right. college online or make college, like find ways to bypass these professors, you know, like, and, the de- and Democrats have played along because for them, it's a question of access, right? Right. Um, and so, so it's, it's, it's slowly moved for me a kind of deeper notion of equality, which is that college is not just about job training. College is about, you know, developing individuals' capacities to interpret the human and natural worlds. I mean, that's what a liberal arts and sciences education is. Rock on liberal arts. That's what college is, interpreting, you know, developing curiosity, developing tools and some knowledge and and a kind of disposition that wants to know more and that, and that helps you think about the world more thoughtfully. And that, to me, is yep. we, we use the word critical thinking, but that word is kind of vacuous. To me, it's really just having some tools to interpret that, the world and ask better questions of it than you had before. And to me, that's not the purpose of a business degree. That's not the kind of experience that students have in online settings, particularly in some of these mass online institutions that are kind of cookie cutter institutions. Right. Um, And so that's what I want us to remember. And actually that's a very conservative vision, right? I mean, I think this is part of what I was trying to convey in this book, like that aspect of college education and liberal education, often historically conservatives have been the greatest advocates for, Mm -hmm. because it's about steeping oneself also in tradition and cultural, you know, and, oh, yeah. and thinking about big questions. Yeah. They and love so this, discre- They love discrete knowledge. Conservatives yeah. eat it up. We all have yeah, the same they, facts. Yeah, right. let's get all the same facts. <laughs> um, but that's my – so my hope is actually that there's ways in which we still can share some common ground around right. that. 
Um, and that we don't try to bypass giving more people access to real college because that to me is what we really need to do. And yeah. that doesn't come by saying, telling first generation students, you go to some online school right? or you get some more too, which is giving all kinds of people. And if you want diversity, including political diversity, that's one way to get it on campus, right? Is to make those places truly accessible yeah. and, and intellectually rich spaces. Well, uh, Johan, it's been a pleasure having you on the show again. Our first three-peter. We've had a couple right. of two-peters, two, 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 two but you're our first three-peat. Oh, 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 Mr. Cradle's getting a little chunky, <laughs> chunky over there. Mr. Mr. Cradle, uh, Mr. Cradle, you're speaking Klingon. He's ch- getting chunky over there. Uh, My computer's uh, well, that's why when you first said three-peter, I sort of looked that way and I thought... <laughs> Oh, wait. <laughs> well, it's it's time for our infamous guest quiz. We know you know right. everything there is to know about public right. education. I, I, you know, when, you, when you've been good at school, quit, these tests freak you out still. Well, we want to know what you know about public enemy and public enemy's very own Flava Flav. Oh, no. This is you the ready? wrong way to go with me. All right. I, know you're, I, I don't know if you're a big hip-hop fan, but here we go. Number one, what is Flava Flav's real name? Is it William Jonathan Drayton, A? Is it B, Jonathan William Drayton, or C, Drayton Jonathan William? I'm going with A. A is correct. Born in 1959 in Roosevelt, New York. Grew up in nearby Freeport, New York. Uh, Number two, where did the name Flava Flav arise from? A, his love of cooking and using many spices. B, B, it was originally his graffiti tag, or C, it's taken from a New York-owned brand of cooking oil. Ooh, that's a good Mm, one. This is a tough one. Um, So I think I'm going to go with B. B is correct. It was a graffiti tag. And number three, true to his name, Flava Flav went to what type of school? At least for a short period of time. A, automotive school, B, music production school, or C, culinary school. Well, I'm going to go with the obvious, which is C. C is correct. He attended nice. culinary school in 1978, around the age of 18. Do you want a bonus question? It's a good, it's a good one. God, he's I old. I guess we should do it. Yeah, I guess right. we should do it. Flavor 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 is old. Yeah, he is. Flavor Flavor yeah. taught himself how to play piano. He's not the, the only eight. one. <laughs> he taught himself how to play piano at the age of five and according to chuck d can reportedly play how many other instruments is it a six b 14 or c 20 oh my gosh i just can't imagine i can't even name 20, play 20 other instruments <laughs> <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna say i'm gonna go for six but it's I actually it's B14, 14 oh, for a total of 15 instruments. Uh, but anyway, in, in any case, you got three out of three for all we know and score on this show. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. These were, <laughs> these were tough ones. They came. Johan keeps his streak alive. That's right. That's he's, right. <laughs> he's been a high performer on the, on the, on the Siddons uh, Ed's Not Dead quiz. That's right. Johan Neem, thank you so much for coming on Ed's Not Dead. Uh, thank you we, for having me. We, we look forward to getting you back the next time. Thanks. All right. 
Thanks a lot. All right. Goodbye. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. As always, we are brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. The boys are back. Thanks again to Johan Neem. He was fantastic, wasn't he, fellas, as always? As always. It's always great to talk to him. Yeah, I, I, he, is one of those, he is one of those people that kind of gives me a... Um, and intellectual inferiority I was going to say you feel jealous a little bit yeah it's either inferiority or jealousy or anyway um, thank you Johan for coming on the show again and we will get him back on all right we are at that point in the show um, let's hope this quiz is better than Ooh. Johan's quiz your Flavor Flav quiz was good I when you were I thought there would be didn't he have the show that painful show on MTV. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he called? was, I don't know. It's not, he looked it. like he was a hundred when he was like 40. Yeah. Not doing great. Not doing great. Yeah. But Flavor Flav, he's a, he is a, Hysterical. he is, a, he is an icon. Yes, he is. Yeah. Well, um, I have a quiz for you all and it's, and it's tied to just before we recorded this week, uh, earlier this week, we, we, we had uh, Columbus Day, also known as Indigenous, Indigenous People's, People's Day. Day. Um, federally, it's known as Columbus Day. So I have a quiz for you all. Genoa. I have three questions for Mr. Dodd, <laughs> Dr. Dodd. Genoa, not Genoa. Dr. Dobbs. And I have one, uh, three questions for Mr. <laughs> Crable. You ready? Who wants to go first? I've never been to Italy. <laughs> all right. Dodd's going first. Here we go. The oh, 15th century Italian explorer is tied to the spread of disease, the in- initiation of the transatlantic slave trade into violent acts committed against native inhabitants of the Americas, but we celebrate his holiday anyway. Ready, Dr. Dodd, number one, Indigenous right. Peoples Day, a.k.a. Columbus Day, is celebrated on the second Monday in October. What year did it become a federal holiday? A, 1971, B, 1980, or C, 1981? Ooh, God, I would have thought it was earlier than that. What was the first one, 75? 71. 71. Reagan. Yeah, that that's the Reagan administration versus the Nixon administration. I think I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Tricky Dick Nixon. Let's go with seventy one. Correct, seventy one. Oh, yeah, well look at done. that. Hey, All Casey. Right. Casey, do you do you have a Ronald Reagan impression? And if not, can you work on one? I think it's an impression of Jim Carrey doing it. Can Ronald, you do Ronald Reagan? That's good. That's can you do good. Nixon? Can you do Nixon? Take one for the Gipper. <laughs> They're they're cousins. They're a little close. We got a different. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I didn't do Nixon yet. Uh, oh, oh, okay. No, I do uh, Nixon. I am not a crook. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that, That's is that pretty okay? good. That was good. I have I have more. Th- I have all, uh, some other things that he said that are awful that I can't say on air. Yeah, don't say um, number two. It took how many weeks to travel across the Atlantic for Mister Columbus? One. A eight weeks. B nine weeks. Or C ten weeks. Uh, I'm going C, 10 weeks. C, 10 weeks is correct. You are on fire, my friend. What a streak. Number three, which city was the first city to adopt Indigenous Peoples Day in 19, 
92. Is it A, Berkeley, California, B, Washington, D.C., or C, Nashua, New Hampshire? What was the, what was C? (laughs) Is it Nashua? Uh, <laughs> I think you said it funny because you I didn't was trying really to know say how to pronounce it. No, he was doing it in a Boston accent. Yeah, he was doing it in the New England. Nashua. Uh, okay. Right. okay. Um, I'm well. I mean, this is kind of a tricky question because you the the Berkeley could be a could be a distractor. Is that a red herring? What is it? Yeah, it could be a red herring. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna roll the dice and I'm gonna go with Washington D.C. Incorrect. It's oh, California. Oh, I should have gone with my God. Darn it. Two out of three. Not bad. All right, All right Mr. Krabs. Number one in general. Oh, by the way, oh, let me interrupt you really quick. Quiz. What artist had a famous Prince. chorus line in a song? Two out of three ain't bad. Uh, Chris Christopherson. Let's you you need to Google it when we're done. Okay, Mr. Craves, first Somebody question. Terrible, like James Taylor. Two out of three. James Taylor is not terrible. That's, yeah, he's that's pretty, it, that's he's it pretty incorrect. terrible. Robbie, <laughs> James everybody Taylor. that listens to this not pod good. knows that James Taylor is terrible. So. Yeah, and and Hall okay, and Oates. We, come on, Hall and Oates. Oh, uh, I, I just looked uh, it up. Hall and Oates has like one good song, and they what, whoever sh- plays guitar, Hall or the Oates, kind of shreds a little bit. Just. <laughs> Is it Hall Notes? No, it's Meatloaf. Oh, oh Meatloaf. That's right. Great song. Okay, excuse me. We're going to have, in in the next app, we're going to talk about James Taylor. Okay, let's, let's do it. Because you, uh, it's who, who sang? Sleepy time. I call him Sleepy Time. Sleepy who who time. were the, do, do, you, do, you, do you like Heart of Gold by uh, the great Neil Young? I do. Love, yes. love, right. love, love, love. Look, look up who the backup singers were on Heart of Gold. All right. All right. Then, we'll, we'll do that. Being a backup more. singer doesn't make you a great solo artist. It makes you somebody that was incredibly respected by the best in your business. I agree. I, I think you. he's talented and well-respected. I just think he sucks. <laughs> 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 All right, moving on. First question. All right, number one, Mr. Crable. In, 19, in 1989, which state became the first state to replace Columbus Day with Native American Day? Is it A, South Dakota, B, oh, Pennsylvania, or C, California? South Dakota. Correct. South Dakota Damn is correct. Damn it. Number two, 56 years after Columbus's first voyage, how many natives remained on Hispaniola out of 300,000? Is it A, 100, B, 500, or C ten thousand. I will say oh, no man. way, no way. Ten thousand is too high. Don't, don't, don't. I'm here to help you. I'm a lifeline, Crabs. Uh, what one hundred and five hundred? Five. Go with five hundred. Middle choice. How many years after? Fifty two. Fifty six years. Uh, yeah, I'll go with B. B is Everybody. correct. Five hundred. Sad, but true. That that was that was because malaria had that is had, a wa- had wiped fact. everyone out. It's, it's absolutely shocking. Out of 300,000. Uh, number three, roughly how many counties, districts, cities, incorporated towns, boroughs, villages, and census-designated places are named after Columbus? Is it A, 92, B, 20, or C, 54? 54. 54 is correct. Mr. Crable, you got three out of three correct. Ooh, Two, yeah. 2.7 million Americans live in these 54 places. All right. He won. I don't, I get good. That was good. You kind of get a half a point. Honestly, I think I was going to say 10,000. 
But I, I pretty much just went with what you said. So All right. So I think it's a tie. It's a tie. So if anybody's <laughs> asking why we're trying to call it Indigenous Peoples Day, you might want to look at the answers to those questions. Uh, did you look up who the backup singers were on Heart of Gold? Oh, there's more than the great James Two. Taylor. Two. Two that were the best of their era. Stephen Stills? Nope. Uh, let's find out. Is it something that I'm going to like or not like? I don't know. They're oh, way I don't know. Linda Ronstadt. No, the great Linda Ronstadt and James no Taylor. No way. Yep. You can hear them in the very end of the song, the last verse. Uh, you can hear Linda's incredible voice. Um, you can't never, hear James quite as much. I've never I really just listened have, to any Linda Ronstadt before. Oh, uh, she's a, she was, she had, uh, she didn't have that many great songs, but when it came to just, just pure voice, she was, and she was a part of that early seventies female singer songwriter, you know, the Carly Simons, Linda Ronstadt's, um, they were, that was a, that was a great, great era. You, you know, who started as her, her, her band, right? Linda's band. No, uh, that would be the Eagles. Oh, really? Yes. Whoa. They were her touring band. Yep. Wow. No way. Yep. All right. Since you all know nothing, I just have to educate you all the time about pop culture. Um, all right, boys. Uh, what do you What do you got going on this weekend? How How nice is it as being an administrator, getting to the weekend? I know it's a wonderful feeling for teachers and other school personnel as well, but. There's something about when you send everybody home on a Friday oh, as, a, as, a, as a school leader. So quiet. Look at those 200, 250 unread email. <laughs> nothing exciting. <laughs> Owen's been doing uh, soccer. So that's kind of it's like right in the middle of the day on Saturday. Just gonna, it's not, not terrible, but uh, you know, that's kind of takes up that day. Do an activity in the morning, do that. But it's prevented us from going camping, which I'm kind of bummed about. Yeah. All right. I'm teaching skillful teaching on Saturday for a couple hours. Sittens is always doing that. He's always he's always got the Never side turns hustle. It off. Never got turns the it side off. hustle going. All the educational side hustle. Go ahead. What it's else? Fun. It's good. It's good. Uh, we have a little park visit with Frida planned. Nice. And, uh, that's that's about it. How about you? Some lawn work. Got a late night tomorrow night. You know why? Yep. Life of life of a high school principal. Um, yep. And then I think I'm just going to take it easy. Um, I, I've been watching a lot of college football. I'm kind Whoa. of, I, yeah, it's, I don't have much energy these days, boys. So I, I pretty much just <laughs> lay on the couch and <laughs> watch, the old, watch the old pigskin get thrown around. I do. I so, do. And so I, let, I, let me, let me share something with you. And my kids want nothing to do with me. You all are not in that phase. So yeah. they, they, they don't care what I do when I do it. I could, I say hi and they barely acknowledge me. So I can just kind of do what I want now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not a big college football guy. And so never re- really did any tailgating really for anything actually now that I'm thinking about it, but a pretty clutch move that I had. So I have family that lives in Columbus. So I went to yeah, a you- high state football game, yeah. did some tailgating. This was like years ago. You take a bag of Fritos, mm-hmm. you open it up, you, right. take the, you take the chili that's made right there, you dump the chili in the bag of Fritos, put a little bit of cheese in there, stir so it up, good. bada bing, bada boom, so got good. a Frito pie right there. Ooh. Yeah. 
pretty legit. And then, it, and, are, and then, and then it's on the pavement five hours later, or three hours later. It's somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to try that. Uh, Johnny's applying to Ohio state. Oh, nice. Okay. Yep. Yep. Columbus, Ohio state, a, a hip town now. Yep. Ohio state, Penn state, Pitt. Um, uh, University of North Carolina, Wilmington, a bunch of them. So we're, we are in the, we are in the, th- I was going to ask Johan about test optional. I was curious about when he shot down my inequality theory about college. I wanted to talk to him about what colleges are doing to, to get more kids in, but yeah. we didn't get there uh, anyway. I'm maybe not getting them in, but keeping them in. Yeah. That's always been the issue and that doesn't get focused on enough. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company. Thanks to the folks from Pulp for specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform. You can find us on Twitter. You guys need to start tweeting again at, at Ed's Not Dead PC and check out the website, edsnotdead.com. Uh on behalf of the guys, fellas, I know we are psyched to have our listeners back. Spread the word about the pod. So season season five, Mr. Siddons, you got a you. You are the key show planner. You got a killer um, rundown for us this season of guests and uh, and and features. Right, I'm excited. We got. Uh... I don't know if you you know Matt Barnum from Chalkbeat. He might be coming yep. on. We yep. have uh, Alexander Russo, who's also an education writer. He's pretty cool, and uh, we're trying to get him scheduled as well. So let's get that new Secretary of Ed on. He'll be a year into the job. That's let's true. let's let's get him in by mid 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 year. I keep emailing Joe Biden at WhiteHouse.gov, and like no one responds. I, yeah, I get well. text. I get text from Joe every now and then. I'll show them to you if you want, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a little, I mean, edu- we have to admit federally education has been quiet. Uh, there's not, I mean, other than, other than all the nonsense about masks, there's not that much we, we need to, maybe yeah, that's good after that's, a, a dear Miguel segment. We couldn't even do it. Yeah. Dear not Miguel even enough to done. find. No, no. Um, Joe Biden. Oh, he texted you. That's he great. Texted you know, Casey's, he just, hold, Casey's holding his phone to the Zoom yeah, screen. He says, what's up? You know, whatever. But he doesn't answer his, phone, his email. So whatever. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, for Casey and Peter, say later, boys. Thanks, folks. We'll talk see to you ya. soon. Bye.